if you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer? We're turning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're starting a new series today that should take us to the end of May. Mark, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. This is the word of our Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you'd speak to us as we consider this portion of your word. We pray that you help me to proclaim what is true and what is helpful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Mark tells us that he's writing about the gospel of Jesus Christ in verse 1, and then he proceeds to tell us the whole story of Christ's life. He he tells us all the facts about the life of Christ and the theological significance of those facts. And that tells us how important it is for us to know the life of Christ. The fact that, that, that the Mark calls the entire life of Christ the gospel of Christ, tells us how important it is for us to know the life of Christ. In addition to that, when we love someone, we wanted to know everything about them. And we love Jesus. Because of that, we're going to spend most of the first semester of 2023 considering the first year of Jesus' life. Uh, That should take us through John chapter 4 with a sprinkling of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in there somewhere. So that's the plan through the end of May. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was born on 5 B.C., sometime in the year 5 B.C. And we know that because of all the historical information that the four Gospels provide. And if you're curious about the chronology of the life of Jesus, later on, uh, tonight, you can go to our church blog, so olympiabp.net, and click on the blog, and there'll be an article there tell, explaining how the dates in the life of Jesus are arrived at by looking at all the historical facts that the Gospels themselves give to us. Now, this might be a surprise to you that Christ was born on the year 5 before Christ. That's what B.C. means, that he was born in the year 5 before Christ. How could that be? Well... In A.D. 525, so in, in, in the year 525 of our era, 
a Christian monk by the name of Dionysius suggested that the history of the world should be explained in relationship to Christ. Therefore, things before Christ should be called before Christ. And then he chose a, the nomenclature or the title of Anno Domini for things that happen after Christ, which means the year of the Lord. So before Christ, B.C. Is, is just that. And A.D. means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, the year of the Lord. And Europe and the Christian, the Christian world adopted that way of thinking about history, where the dividing factor of history is the life of Christ. Now, the problem is that, uh, you know, 525, you don't have a lot of resources. And he did a great job, but he was off by five years in his dating. So his year one was five, was five years off or four years off from when Jesus was actually born. Now, what calendar did we follow? follow? What's the name of the calendar that we currently use? Does anybody know that? We followed the Gregorian calendar. And uh, in 1582, Pope Gregory XII, that was a very popular name for popes, that in Benedict, uh, Pope Gregory XII reorganized the old Julian calendar because what happens, the, the old Julian cal- calendar was only 360 days. You have enough years of 360 days, what happens to the seasons? It's going to be snowy in July, right? Because it gets shifts. So uh, Gregory set up this new calendar and included leap, leap years here and there and so on. And that's what we use today. But he kept that year one on the wrong place just because that was where it was, and, and so on. That's what you use today, and that's the calendar that we use today. But Jesus was born five, in 5 B.C., sometime that time, uh, 5 before Christ. And he had a three-year public ministry. So we, we just spent some time in the early chapters of Luke and Matthew over the Christmas, the Advent season. We saw the birth of Christ and so on. Then Luke gives us uh, that one incident when he was age 12, when the family came to the temple and he stayed behind and said, I'm about my father's business. But the rest of the, the Gospels are about the three years that Jesus publicly ministered to the people in Palestine and then the immediate regions around it. So Lebanon, Jordan, Ammon, some of it down there, Ammon or whatever how you call that country uh, down there. And we know that he had three years of ministry primarily because of all the Passover feasts listed in the Gospel of John. I think intuitively we would not think of the Gospel of John as the most chronological one, but it is. It gives us the best chronology of the life of Jesus. And when you count the number of feasts and you know they only happen once a year, you can figure out how long Jesus ministered publicly and that we arrive at the number three. So, in that case then... Um, John, early in A.D. 26, John the Baptist became, be, began his ministry. Then later on, on A.D. 26, sometime in the fall or winter, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And then in the spring of A.D. 30, Jesus was crucified. So you have about three years in there somewhere for the ministry of Jesus. Now, it's important that you notice that the Jewish mind wasn't necessarily worried about precision. It's more like Brazilian minds. Time is abstract, which it is an abstract concept, but time is subjective, I should say, right? So portions of three years would be equal to three years. No, three years and 10 months would be equal to either three years or four years. It doesn't matter, however you want to count. 
If you go to Brazil on a Sunday and you have a church service, so the church is at 11 o'clock, well, any time that the, the numbers 11 are showing, it's on time. So 11, 1101, 11.02, 11.59, this is all on time, and that's kind of like those. So three years is not, let's not think of 36 months, but three years, generally speaking, is the time that Jesus ministered, ministered publicly. This series is going to only be about the first year of that ministry, year one, which is a year of obscurity. We don't know a lot about it from the other Gospels, but John spends a lot of time on that. As a matter of fact, the first four chapters of John are about that first year, and that we don't find that account in the other Gospels. So that's why I said that this series is going to be mostly about John 1 through 4, with a sprinkling of things from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially when talking about the temptations that's recorded in the, in the three um, other Gospels. I want you to notice here, according to Mark, that the Gospel of Jesus begins with John the Baptist. In verses 1 through 4, well, in verse 1 we have the, the, the title for the whole book. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he starts describing what he means by that. And the first thing he talks about is the ministry of John the Baptist. So John the ba- John's ministry, according to, Bar- to Mark, was essential for Jesus' ministry. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah. One commentator said this, The opening words emphasize that the good news concerning Jesus the Christ was inseparably bound up with the preparation provided by John the Baptist. Peter also considered John's ministry as inseparable from Jesus' ministry. When, remember in Acts chapter 1, Judas is killed himself, he's dead. They, they do believe that they need 12 apostles, so they're in the process of finding somebody to replace uh, Judas. Eventually they end up with Matthias. And uh, they're trying to, what are the criteria for, uh, for being eligible to be elected an apostle? Peter says there has to be somebody that witnessed the gospel of Christ beginning with the ministry of John through the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So what we read here in the beginning of Mark and the beginning of Matthew is essential for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now at this point, a comment about John's title is necessary. So John, the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, the cousin of Jesus, remember back in December when we look at uh, Mary's song, we saw that Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, which makes John a cousin of Jesus. He, was, he became known in history as John the Baptist. And this might sound silly, but it's not, because I've had this question asked, right? Uh, people have asked me, if John was a Baptist, why are you a Presbyterian? This is not a joke. So let me clarify this. The title, Baptist, has nothing to do with theological persuasion. It has to do with what he was known for, the one who baptized. So perhaps a better title for him would be John the Baptizer. If we were going to give him a title that had to do with theological persuasion, we would call him John the Presbyterian, not John the Baptist, because it has nothing to do with the theological persuasion. But we will consider John's ministry in more detail next Lord's Day. For today, I just want to focus on this first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want us to consider this word gospel by itself. 
In Roman culture, so Mark is writing in the first century. Some people think that Mark was the first gospel to be written, something that Matthew and Luke were the same first gospel to be written. But whatever it is, we're talking about the mid to 50s to mid 60s. That's when these books were written, of AD 50s to AD 60s. And so it was written in a Roman culture. It's likely that Mark is writing from Rome, so the, in the midst of this Roman culture. And in Roman culture, gospel meant joyful tidings or joyful news. It also referred to a historical event which introduced a new situation in the world. Now, the word is often used for anything the emperor did because, you know, you couldn't say things against the emperor. So whatever the emperor did was a world-changing event, even if it was just closing the door or whatever. So, but that's the idea of the gospel is good tidings that's going to cause a change in the world. So putting these two things together, the word gospel in the Roman world of the first century and Mark was written meant joyful news that brings change to the world. So that's something you have to keep in mind as you read these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Mark was also writing in the Jewish context. I don't know if you know that, but Mark is likely that guy in the gospel of Mark. Let me back up. All of Mark can be either found in Matthew or Luke. Okay? The entire Gospel of Mark, you can find the same passages in Matthew or in Luke, except for one passage. And as the story of this young man who's following Jesus when he's arrested, and then the soldiers come to grab him, and they grab his clothes, his robe, and then he runs away naked. So most people think that's Mark. We also know that was at Mark's house, or at least his mother's house, where the Last Supper took place. The upper room was in a house that belonged to Mark's mom, or at least to her family. So he, he was a Jew. So Mark is also written, not solely in a Roman context, but also in a Jewish context. And for the Jews, the word gospel meant good news that the promises of God were going to be fulfilled or about to be fulfilled. It was about the faithfulness of God in bringing to pass all the things he promised to his people. And we see that in Mark when he starts by quoting Isaiah and Malachi. Now, uh, our translation, New King James, says in verse 2 that as it is written in the prophets. But if you have a different translation, you're going to see this as it is written in Isaiah. And that's a better reading there. And uh, he quotes Malachi and Isaiah there, which follows an ancient practice of just giving us the name of the bigger book. Isaiah is way bigger than Malachi, so he just refers to Isaiah. But we see there that Mark was looking at this gospel as the fulfillment of all the promises that God had given to them. We tend to think of gospel, the word, as, as, as describing a book, but that use of the word didn't come about to the second century. Um, it, it, it really refers to the living word of hope from the lips of an appointed messenger. It's in, in this term, is the proclamation that the Christian has. So putting all this together, the word gospel means the joyful news that the promises of God are about to be fulfilled in a way that's going to change the world, and that news is going to be proclaimed by God's messengers, which ends up being us. And notice that this gospel that Mark is talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, look at the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son 
of God. This is not the gospel that belongs to Jesus, but the gospel that's about Jesus. Mark and the other gospel writers are going to tell us the story of Jesus, and the whole thing is good news. Now, we tend to think that the good news is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that is great news. But the good news is more than that. Jesus also lived for us. And when, a gospel, when Mark talks about the good news of Christ, he includes his entire life as being part of that good news. The gospel, the good news about Christ is all the content of Mark 1 through Mark 16 and all the other gospels as well. And this teaches us that there is no gospel apart from the historical account concerning Jesus Christ. It is of necessity that Jesus was exactly who he says he is and he, that he was a real historical character. Jesus was not an idea. It doesn't work if Jesus was just an idea. He was a real person who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, and now lives at the right hand of the Father. And I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is a real living person, not just a historical character in a book. And the Gospels and Mark presents him as a real person. As a matter of fact, Mark goes out of his way to use a a particular grammatical construction called the historical past. Mark rarely uses a past tense. Everything's in the present, so that the reader can be brought into the narrative and live it out with Christ, the reality of Christ in it. And notice also that Mark gives us one more identifying characteristic of Jesus in this passage. He says again in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. Mark actually sandwiches his whole gospel with that statement that Jesus is the Son of God. We find here in the very beginning, and we find it at the crucifixion, where, as you remember, the centurion, after all took place, looked at Jesus as indeed this is the Son of God. But this was a favorite t- title of the gospel writers. Each one of the gospel writers uses them in their, in their gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. And this is important. Because the truth that Jesus is the Son of God is a foundational truth for the church of Jesus Christ. Remember that episode where Jesus finds himself in the Decapolis. So he is in northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you can picture the Sea of Galilee in your mind, he's northeast of it. That's a Gentile territory. And if you can picture it, go home and Google it or look in the back of your Bible. There might be a map there. So he's in Gentile territory. He's just with his, he just ended up, they had a fight with the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is no surprise, happens all that time. He crosses the Sea of Galilee, northeast. He is, so he's in Lebanon now. Okay? And he has a conversation with his disciples, just them. And he asks them, Who do people say that I am? Remember that episode? And they say, Some say that you're a prophet, you're Jeremiah, or you're Elijah. And but then he narrows it. Okay, I want to know who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what how Jesus reacts to that? He says, You are Peter, and upon the rock, the rock's not Peter. It, grammatically, it's impossible to be Peter. And this rock, what's the rock? The proclamation that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against them. It is on this proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God that the church is being built. 
And as we build the church on that proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the gates of hell will not prevail, will have no, no chance against the church. So Jesus is the Son of God. But the question remains, what does it mean that Jesus was the Son of God? What it means is that Jesus is equal of God. It means that Jesus was God himself. The religious leaders of Jesus' time got that. They understood that was the fact, the, the, the case. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought to, all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So the, the immediate audience who knew the Old Testament realized that Jesus' claiming that he was a, the Son of God meant that he was claiming to be equal with God, the same nature of God. So being the Son of God means that he was of the same nature of God, God himself. But on that, he was equal in power. As he continues talking there in John chapter 5, he says that the Father has given him the power... To raise people from the dead. So he's equal in power. And as he continues there in chapter 5, it says he's equal in authority with the Father. Being the Son of God, he's equal in authority with the Father. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Same authority as the Father. And then he also is the same glory as the Father. In John 17, he prays to his Father, his store the glory that we had together before the foundation of the world. So being the Son of God means that He is God Himself, equal with God, same nature, authority, power, and glory. And that's the gospel that Mark and all the other gospel writers are presenting to us. It is the gospel, the joyful news concerning Jesus Christ that we'll spend the next few months considering it. And as I said, we're going to spend a lot of time in John in, verses one, in chapters 1 through 4 with some Matthew, some Mark, and some Luke here and there. And as we finish this morning, I wanted to tell you what my hope is for this series. I want to tell you what I hope happens through this series. Seven things that I, want, I hope that happens through this series. The first one is this. I hope you get to know Jesus better. And I mean it facts about Jesus. We tend to, in our culture, tends to poo-poo facts in favor of experiences. It doesn't matter what you know, it's just what you experience. That's not a Christian way of thinking. Our faith is a propositional faith, is a reasonable faith. It means it can be reasoned based on facts. When the Apostle Paul summarized the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, says, this is a gospel that we preach in which you have been saved, in which you are being saved that Christ died, that's historical, for my sins, that's theological, that he was buried, historical fact, that he raised from the dead, historical fact, that he appeared to the twelve, historical fact, that he appeared to Cephas, historical fact, that he appeared to over 500 people that are still around, that you can go talk to them, historical fact, that he appeared to James, you can go talk to me, even James is not super fond of me, you can go talk to, Paul says, you can go talk to him, and he'll confirm that he saw you, and then he appeared to me, Paul says, historical facts. So I hope as we study this first year of Jesus' ministry that you will get to know him better. Facts about him. That you, you, you. And that's important because that's how we know people. Not just by experiencing them, but by knowing things about them. People 
trying to make a distinction between knowing God and knowing about God. Well, you cannot know God without knowing about Him either. So those two things have to go together. The second thing I hope you accomplish is that I hope that through those facts, you have a greater appreciation for Jesus Himself. Through, as you learn more and more about Him, that your love for Him will grow. Thirdly, I hope that you will embrace Jesus' teaching in His first year of public ministry by applying it to your life with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be looking at the, the person of Christ. We're going to be looking at the work of regeneration that the Spirit does through the proclamation of the gospel. We're going to uh, be looking at the, uh, how worship is to be conducted uh, for the Lord. All that's taught in that first year of ministry. And I hope that the, you put that in practice in your life by the help of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, if you have never believed in Jesus for the sake of your soul, I hope that this series will help you know Him as your Savior. I hope that the Spirit grabs hold of your heart, replaces that heart of stone, and gives you a heart of flesh that is able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you stop playing church and actually become a follower of Jesus Christ. That you stop being a hypocrite and actually come to repentance and believe in Him and follow Him faithfully. Fifthly, I hope that our faith as a church will be strengthened as we see how reliable and how accurate the four Gospels are. As we go through it, we're going to see how these are reliable, they fit together, they are, the evidence for them is just insurmountable. Only the ignorant tries to deny, deny it, like people like Richard Dawkins and so on makes statements, and just because he has some sort of British degree, people say, oh, he said that, must be true. And yet, when you actually look at it, he is the one that is making the foolish statements, not the Christian that, ho- that believes in the truth of the veracity of the Gospels. Sixthly, I hope that all of us will be better prepared to proclaim the good news concerning Jesus Christ. As we get to know him better, that we also are better prepared to, pro- to proclaim this good news to others. And lastly, above all, I hope that this series will help us glorify God and enjoy Him now and forever, which is the goal of everything that we do. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for writing it down for us. We thank You for Your Spirit that works in us to understand it. As we begin this series today, we pray that you guide us through it. We pray that it be profitable for your church. Help us to grow in love with Jesus Christ. For those that don't believe in you, we pray that you change their hearts, that they might believe, even as they hear the truths of Christ proclaimed to them. Revive us, even through the proclamation of your word. For asking Jesus' name, amen.